Okay, well, if you have your Bibles, if you could get those Bibles open to the Gospel of John. So here's how you find the Gospel of John. You just simply get to the table of contents. Your, all your all Bibles have it. So get to the table of contents, or if you don't want to do that, just go to the New Testament, and you're going to go to the right to your fourth book, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. So John chapter 17, this is one of the Gospels of Jesus Christ, or the Gospel according, of Jesus Christ according to John is actually technically how you want to say that. So while you're opening that, I'm actually going to have a word of prayer, and that's how we're going to begin today. Heavenly Father, I would definitely admit, I don't know how I could not because this was so glaring all week. This passage is so far beyond me. It was just an unescapable, inescapable sense that I am not even getting below the surface on this. So Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Spirit, that you would open up your word, Lord, to penetrate our hearts, to help us in this area of unity. It is so difficult. Lord, we need your help. So Lord, I pray, Father, that you would open up your word and invigorate our hearts. Lord, open our hearts and change us to see how critical and how important and how awesome and how wonderful it is to be in the family of God together and to understand that and to maintain and guard our unity. So Lord, we pray for your help in that. And in the name of Jesus, amen. I want to put this before you. Now, if you don't have this in your Bibles, that might mean that that maybe you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we gave these out. These are your memory verses that we're asking you to commit to memory. Pretty soon, I would probably guess in a couple weeks, your campus pastor will randomly select you out of these pews to stand up and recite these. We're that kind of church. So I want to encourage you, to hide the Word of God in your heart. I'm, I'm giving you a warning. This is what I'm doing. This is grace. I'm telling you before we do it that you need to remember these verses. You need to memorize these. There may come a time. Now listen, I'm going to be very, very serious with you. There may come a time in our lifetimes that owning and possessing a copy of the Word of God is illegal. That's very true in the Middle East in many, many sections of it. And you're going to need to have the Word of God hidden in your heart, meaning you haven't memorized sections of it. And this is one of the ones that we want you to memorize. So each sermon series that we go through, we're going to have an area that we want you to memorize, and then we're going to ask you to see if you are doing that, and then give you the opportunity to recite those. So let me encourage you, pick one of these up in the back if you don't have one. It's 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, and uh, get going on hiding that in your heart. Now, I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you. This is going to set the stage for what we're going to talk about in this passage. We're going to look at verses 15 through 23 of John chapter 17. I want you to hear this very, very true example of what we're going to talk about. Johann Lukasi of the Belgian Evangelical Mission, he came to the realization that evangelism in Belgium was getting nowhere. Now listen to this. This is his account. The land seemed impervious to the gospel. People just were not getting saved. People were not coming to the realization that they were sinners by nature and soon learned to be sinners by choice and were separated from a holy God. And there's only one way to heal that separation through Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's a free gift of grace. But people in Belgium were not embracing that. People were not coming to that realization and getting saved. So he created a plan that he got out of John chapter 13. First, he gathered a group of Christian volunteers made up of Belgians, Dutch, Americans, 
And then he had them rent a house right down in the center of their city for seven months. They lived together for seven months. Belgians, Dutch, and Americans lived together in one home for seven months. And naturally, as would be the case with any of us, frictions began to develop as believers rubbed each other raw, just getting on each other's nerves. You know what that did? It finally made that entire group turn to prayer for love and victory. They began to pray and plead for God to help them to love one another. Finally, they went out to witness to others. Now that God had healed those rifts and God had brought them together with a a common love for Jesus and a common love for each other, exalting Jesus, loving one another, they went back out into the city and they began to see now amazing fruit. In fact, the people of that city began to call this group of Americans and Belgians and Dutch Christians Quote, the people who love each other, end quote. And the gospel began to make its way into their lives. What is the ultimate goal of the church? Now I want you to think through that for a moment. Come on, don't don't put your mind in neutral waiting for me to tell you some magical answer. I'm not even sure actually that the answer that I'm going to tell you is one that you're going to agree with. It's one I believe in. I can... I think I can show you this in scripture clearly, but I don't know if you're going to believe it at first. So get your mind in gear. What's the ultimate goal of the church? Surprisingly, to a lot of people, it is not missions. It's not missions. Here it is. You ready? Here's the ultimate goal of the church. It's always been this. Listen, it's going to be this goal for all eternity. It is worship of Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate goal of the church. Well, you might still be arguing in your mind, no, I think it's missions. That's what Christ told us to do, make disciples of all nations. That's the goal. That's the mandate. That's the commandment. That's the mission. That's the goal. It's not. You know, missions are going to end when Christ finally returns and sets up human history or ends human history and begins eternity. Missions will end. Missions will no longer be necessary. The ultimate goal of the church that will endure for eternity is the worship of Jesus Christ. Now listen, get your mind on that. Even if you don't yet fully understand that or agree to that, at least lodge it in your mind says maybe that's correct. And we're going to really see that in this sermon. We're going to see that in this passage. If you and I are not enjoying Jesus Christ, growing in him by glad exaltation and a love for him, then listen, we have a poor and ineffective witness to the world of the salvation of Christ. Listen, when we grow in worship, when we more gladly exalt Christ, when our hearts enlarge with a love for him, when our hearts enlarge with an obedience to him, that will energize and empower your witness in the world. That is the ultimate goal in the church. If we exalt Christ, we lift him up, he will draw men and women to himself. Well, we're being challenged in this sermon series to live powerfully among the non-believing people of this world. Paul or Peter said this in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is our memory passage. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles or aliens and strangers to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That just simply means among unbelieving people. Honorable, beautifully, well. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God when he returns on the day of visitation. So how do we live powerfully 
in a world that is not our home? Jesus is going to answer that in his prayer. Now, John chapter 17, I hope you have your Bibles open. And I'm going to give you four points. I'm going to encourage you to take notes. And if you don't like to take notes, then I'm going to try to tell you where I really think you want to anchor this into your mind. But here's point number one. We are not of this world. Make sure you noted that preposition, of. We are not of this world. Now let's get our bearings on this. It doesn't mean that we're little green Martians. It doesn't mean that we're weird. It doesn't mean that we're odd and quirky intentionally. It just means we're not of this world. What does that mean? Well, we're going to try to flesh that out. I want you to imagine for a moment, everybody engage in this if you can, imagine for a moment, let's pick a woman, let's say she's a woman, let's say this is a woman, I want you to imagine a woman who doesn't believe that there is a God, an atheist, there's no God, when life is over here, you're done, you blink out of existence, there was no sentient being, there was no prime mover of the universe, we came into existence through an evolutionary bang, it was an accident, and it's been an accidental gradient of improvement, and there's nothing that happens when you're dead, you're an atheist, this woman is an atheist, there is no God, she opens a Bible on a trip with her job in a hotel room, and on a whim begins to read the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Christ. And because the Word of God is living and active, it doesn't need, as in it cannot do it without it, it doesn't need a mediator. The Word of God is living, it's powerful, it can do its job of bringing to somebody salvation on its own. God uses a mediator, but His Word is living, His Word is able. So she reads the Word of God, she reads about Jesus. Now watch, listen, imagine, suddenly her heart begins to quicken. She could feel her pulse. She could feel her heart thumping in her chest. If some of you have been saved when you were older and you felt God drawing you to him, you can feel that. You know what that feels like. Her heart begins to respond. She sees the truth. Her eyes open. She begins to believe it. And in that hotel room, formerly an atheist, she now cries out for salvation. That's happened all over the world. And after she cries out for salvation and God makes her his daughter and a sister of Christ, adopting her into his family, sealing her, all of a sudden, imagine all of a sudden, the very atomic structure of her body begins to dematerialize as she is beamed up to heaven for the rest of eternity. Didn't even have to pull out a communicator like Captain Kirk. Didn't have to ask Scotty to beam her up. It just happened. And all over the world, when somebody, just imagine it, when somebody turns to Christ for salvation with belief, immediately they are transported to eternity in heaven. Is that what Jesus says? That we are not of this world. Is that what he means in verse 15? I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Listen, it's the exact opposite. The reality of salvation is very different. And the prayer of Jesus shows us what it is. Listen, Jesus does not pray for our escape. He prays for our protection. Let me read it again. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. He's not praying for our escape. There is no dematerializing of your body, no beaming instantly on salvation. Look what he prays, but that you keep them. He's praying to his father, father, that you keep them from the evil one. He's praying for protection. Now he's speaking to his disciples, or rather he's praying to God, but he has his disciples with him. Now I want you to get this, it's very important. They're in the upper room. He is hours before his crucifixion. This is what most experts believe between 11 p.m. and midnight. 
And by 9 o'clock the next morning, he's going to be nailed to a cross. He'll be on there for six hours and die at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. So this is 11 p.m. the night before he begins to pray to his father. They're about to leave the upper room. They're about to walk through the city down the Kidron Valley across the brook over to the Garden of Gethsemane where he will be in such prayer-filled anguish that his body begins to burst his capillaries and the blood mixes with sweats and comes out of his pores. It's called hematidosis. So that's about to happen, but now he's in the upper room. Now he's got 11 of his 12. Judas the betrayer is left. He's praying to his father. He's praying for his disciples, and he prays this. Now look at your text. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now watch. I want you to hear this. I want you to get the imagery. They're listening to Jesus pray to his father. How intimate is that? I tell couples all the time, the most intimate thing you will ever do in your marriage, far beyond physical intimacy, is prayer. There is nothing more intimate than that. They're listening to Jesus pray to his Father. They get to eavesdrop. They get to listen to it. We get to hear it. And he prays and he says to his Father, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And all of a sudden what trickles into our minds is this theology that we're not made Christian brother and sister for this world. This is not our home. We're rescued out of this world. We're of different substance. We've been remade reborn now listen what does that what does that mean if you have come to christ there's some evidential things that you want to note there are some marks that will prove that you're in christ the things that you used to really love in this world they don't satisfy you anymore they don't fill your heart with pleasure anymore. It might be very, very short-lived. You might be pleasured for a moment, but it quickly drains, and you're more empty than you were before when you drink at the world's wells. That's what it means to be remade. Nothing of this world can fit in your soul any longer. It's just not big enough. It's like really being ridiculously hungry, and somebody gives you a peanut it won't slake your thirst. It won't satisfy your hunger. In fact, it's the wrong food for you. What's it mean that we are not of the world just as I am not of the world? This past week, my mountain bike sold. I've been trying to sell it. been wanting to sell it. Sold to somebody in Michigan who saw it on Craigslist. Now watch the transaction here. He uses PayPal... It was boxed up and sent up to Michigan, and now it belongs to a new owner. Now, I want you to get that imagery. Church, I'm going to speak to you, brother and sister in Christ. We have been purchased by God. He didn't use PayPal. Listen, he paid for us with the death of his son. The purchase price was blood, and it wasn't a quart or a pint extracted from the arm of Jesus. He had a bleed to death. It was his death that provided the meritorious payment that can take God's wrath and put it onto Jesus and take God's pleasure from Jesus and put it onto us. Listen, that was the purchase price. And when he bought us, Listen, it was cashed in the moment you put your faith in Jesus. And in that moment, you were transferred to his family. He adopted you. He sealed you into his son's name. So this is what Paul means when he writes, You are not of your own. You are not your own. We are not our own. For you were bought with a price. That purchase price, God paid through the death of his son to buy us out of slavery, to free us into his love, into his family, into eternity. 
It's what Colossians 1.13 is getting to. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Listen, I put a lot of miles on that mountain bike. I owned it free and clear. I sold it. It no longer belongs to me. It was transferred to Michigan, and now somebody else is enjoying the bike. We've been transferred out of the world. We are now into God's kingdom. So listen, this world is not your home because you've been transferred out of it. You don't belong here. Now watch, I'm going to balance this. When I say you don't belong here, it means this is not your final destination. This is not what brings you satisfaction. This is not what your remade soul is built for. Your remade soul is built to exalt Christ, to worship him, to adore him, to labor for him, to obey him, to serve him, to be in communion with other Christians who are doing the same. That's your home that's called the kingdom of God. But Jesus keeps going. I want you to hear this prayer. He prays, sanctify them, Father, in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, now this is interesting. I want you to, this is one of the things you got to pound down. If you're not taking notes, you got to remember this. Sanctify two main meanings. One is ha- it has a basic meaning of different or separate or set apart. That's what it means. Sanctified means to be set apart. You're different. It also means number 2 that you're now holy, clean and pure. So you're made holy in Christ. You're made clean. Your sins are gone. They've been put into the account of Jesus on the cross. The Father poured your sins into him. He poured Christ's righteousness into you. You've got a brand new bank account, Christian, and it's got a lot of credit to it. In fact, it's infinite credit. You've got all the blessings of the Father poured into that account, and you can extract from them and withdraw from them every moment of every day and you will never run out so the fact that you've been made holy that i've been made holy pure means that god now has set us apart he has a purpose for us that is different than your purpose before you came came to know jesus you get to see this in first corinthians 6 11 but you were washed you were sanctified You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Both meanings are to be taken together. And when you do, now you understand what Christ is praying. Let me say it again. Let me me show you what his prayer is from the Amplified Bible version. You can see it up on the screen. Here's what it says. Sanctify them. Here's the brackets that the Amplified version does means purify, consecrate, separate them for yourself, Father. Make them holy by the truth. Your word is truth. So how is God, how is Jesus, how is the Father, how is the Spirit sanctifying us? Well, he saved you, he justified you. Now listen, and he continues to sanctify you through his word, making your passions more pure. Now we're going to get into that in point number two. Here it is, point number two. We are sent into the world. Now, we're not of the world, but we're being sent into the world. And some of you are going, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. You're telling us we're not of the world, but now we're sent into the world. Well, look what Jesus says, and I think it'll become clear. Look at verse 18. And as you sent me into the world, he's praying to his father, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, Christian, look at me for a moment, if you would. How how can we effectively serve a lost world of unbelievers if we're not willing to be sent into it? So unless our churches live in the midst of communities and unless the christians in the churches realize that they're serving christ in their workplaces in schools in neighborhoods and in many cases 
families where unbelievers are. Unless we get this, unless we understand this, how can we penetrate the darkness with the worship of our exalted Savior? Listen, if only we exalt Christ at church in the building rather than realize that the church is the people of God and you exalt him wherever you are, listen, the world will not know him. Do you realize that very intentionally we're not trying to bring unbelievers to church? We hope they come. We're not advertising that way. Listen, when I preach, I'm preaching to the believer. When we worship, we're worshiping together with the believers. We want unbelievers here. We want them to taste. We want them to see. We want them to see what they could be having. We want them to be able to have a little bit of a participation in the fellowship. They could all be theirs if they're in Christ, but they're outside of the covenantal promises. We're trying to get them to come in. But listen, I'm preaching. We're worshiping being as a church of God's redeemed. Martin Luther, the reformer, man, the more I know about him, he was one scary dude. He said this because his faith was so on fire. He said that Christianity has to be a profane faith. Now, we would recoil from that and the usage of profane. Do you know what profane means? It means out of the temple. What he's saying is that Christians come to church for edification and worship and fellowship, but then they go back into the world to bear the witness to the glory of Christ. We are to enter the world, not live a life of detachment in a Christian subculture. And we do it the way that Jesus did. Look what he says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Listen, I want you to picture Jesus for a moment. I mean, don't make a mental image of what you think he looks like because it's going to be wrong. Because he's going to look just like the person you want him to look like. Just picture his character. Picture him being the divine son of God. And I want you to picture this. He involved himself into humanity. He lived among the very ones who needed saving. He saw human sin. Wow, listen. He heard humans swearing and he didn't recoil. He observed blasphemy and didn't threaten. He waded into human disease. He was there when humans died. He dwelled among human poverty and hopeless. He commiserated and cried with human injustice this is jesus he went into the world fully and our mission is the same mission of christ we are sent to announce with our whole lives meaning word and deed that the father has sent the son to save lost sinners you got to be careful let me put a let me put a caution you ready? I hope you're hearing this. This is important. Jesus was sent by the Father to serve humanity, and so aren't we. But here's your caution. But he served them by giving his life as a ransom for many. We can't do that. You can die for people, but your death is not what's called meritorious, meaning that if somebody says, hey, Tim Ackley died for me, God, would you accept me now? God's going to be saying, who? Who is Tim Ackley? I know him, but he has no power to take away your sins. There's only one who does. And the mission of Christ was a mission of redemption. Listen, it, it was, it, it was un, and it is unrepeatable. It is utterly unique. We don't give our lives as a ransom, a ransom. Our message is not about us. It is about Jesus Christ. Listen, just doing good things is not saving people. Exalting Christ in worship and speaking and living the gospel saves people. Because it brings them to Christ. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, 2 Corinthians says. That means in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. That's our job. We go into the world with the ministry and the message of reconciliation, which is the gospel and the good news of Jesus. 
Now connect two things. I'm going to make a bridge. Look at verse 17. Everybody get in your Bibles. Look at that phrase, sanctify them in the truth. Look at verse 19. Sanctified in truth. Come on, we don't use this language. What's it mean? We don't, when's the last time you told somebody, man, you are sanctified today? We don't say this thing. We don't say these kinds of things. It means that Christ equips his people by his word so that they can have a heart and a mind and character that will accomplish his purposes. Now, I'm going to say that again. To be sanctified by truth means the word of God is doing a work of transformation in your heart. So that you think differently, you feel differently, you do differently. And what you do is what God wants you to do as he is saving unbelievers out of the world and bringing them into his kingdom. Christian, we are the sent ones of God. We've been prepared by God who has set us apart. He is making us, He has made us holy, and He is making us holy. He's making us useful by His Word. Now, what that means is this. Now, this is, this is absolutely the most important thing I've told you so far, what I'm about to tell you. Uh, I'm going to just be honest with you. There's two things that bring me more discouragement in pastoring than anything else. Man, I could take any sin. You could come to me and you could confess anything. All that's going to come out of me is love. That's all that's going to come out of me. I'm never going to judge you. That's ridiculous. I know what a great sinner I am. I, I have no place to judge you. So that won't discourage me. And you can tell me, man, I don't know, Pastor Tim, about this faith thing. I don't really feel like it's real. I don't, I, my faith is just dying. It is drying up at the vine. And all I'm going to do is just reach out. I'm going to help people to reach out. We're going to love you. We're going to help you. I'm going to tell you the two things that discourage me more than anything. Ready? Here it is. It's Christians who refuse to understand you will make it nowhere if you don't love the Word of God. If you don't get into the Word of God and read it and know God through it, you will be absolutely ineffective in this world. You're not going to be effective. I can't seem to get too many people to understand that. Therefore, I think it's God's job to do that. I'm just going to faithfully tell you every time I can, you've got to get into the Word, and you've got to love it. If you are a Christian, and you are not in the Word of God daily, listen, you are drying up on the vine, and you are not being used. And it's the most correctable thing you could ever do. God, give me a desire, give me a hunger like David, Psalm 119, for your word. I'm going to tell you the second thing that brings me the most discouragement. It's disunity in the church. It's Christians who cannot seem to love one another when you're hurt. And so you respond in kind. And there's gossip and then there's slander and there's people leave the church and they're angry at something in the church and they never tell you about it until you hear about it months later. And I'm going, this is why the world won't believe. This is exactly what Jesus says. He's about to teach us. Listen, if you want an effective gospel witness, church, if you want to be powerful cornerstone, then your people better learn to love. They better learn to be unified. And like a family, you don't get mad and leave. You work it out. And you deal with it. The reason we are being sent into the world, are you ready? This is what I've already said. I'm underlining it. I'm emphasizing it. The reason that we're being sent into the world is that many in the world would worship Christ through our witness. The reason is not, oh, I hope you hear this. It's not most chiefly to bring comfort to the suffering it is not to get water to the thirsty and food to the hungry. That's, that's all important. The church better be doing these things, but it's not the most in chief thing that we are doing. We are bringing the worship and the glad exaltation of Christ to the unbelievers. The reason is not chiefly 
Why we're going into the world, why we're being sent to the world, is not chiefly to dispense God's will in issues of justice to those who are marginalized. That's important. It's just not the most important. These are all out, outgrowths of gospel mission. It's all the potential fruits of gospel mission. But the chief and the greatest aim of the gospel is the exaltation and the worship of Christ. That's it. And this is precisely why we are multi-siting instead of building a megachurch campus. Listen, we were on our way in 2005. We had bought land in 2002. We were going to build a megachurch. We were going to ask the, the world to come to us. And then all of a sudden we realized this passage is sending us to them. It's the exaltation of a community of the redeemed that brings the light into dark places and cities. Listen, it's the righteous in the city that will make the city prosper. So we're multi-siding, we're beginning campuses where there is darkness, where God is not invaded yet, where the gospel needs to be, and we're going in there, and it's important, listen, I was part of it today, and I was a recipient of it today, but as important and awesome as mulch madness is, and it was, that's not the aim, that's not the goal, the goal is to exalt Christ and to worship him. And adore him. But there's a way you've got to do it. And Jesus is utterly clear. And that way is unity. Point number three. We are to be unified so the world will believe in Jesus. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these only. He's speaking to his disciples. Now listen, get the drama. He's praying to the Father. Now he's prayerfully pointing to the eleven. So it says, I do not ask for these only, these 11 men, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's you, Christian brother. That's me. That's people in 100 years should human history go that long. That's people in the last 2,000 years. Everybody that's come into the church that calls themselves the redeemed. Listen, Jesus was praying for you. He was praying specifically for you. And look what he's praying, verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He prays, asking that we might be unified. Do you know what that means? Okay, now let me, I'm going to be utterly clear. Christian, listen, if you have to pray for something, that means you cannot make it happen in your effort. Now, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not speaking heresy here. I'm not limiting Jesus. I'm actually directing it from Jesus to us. If Jesus is praying that the Father would make us one, that means it's a gift of grace. We can't deliberately try harder to be one people because guess what? I have a heart that still likes to sin. I like to be number one. I like to, I like to sit on the throne. I've got this pride thing that I'm battling, and you do too. So my pride comes into collision with your pride, and all of a sudden, disunity is, results, is the result. So we need help. So Jesus, praying for this, puts unity in the church firmly in the category of grace, meaning it's not something you can earn. It's something that God must give. And he begins to pray for us. And he says, unity among the disciples of Christ. This is so, so amazing. It enables people in the world to believe Jesus is the Son of God that was sent for their salvation. This isn't a call to get rid of denominations, by the way. Do you know there's nations in heaven? Do you know God's the one that set up the 12 tribes of Israel? Listen, there are good things in Christ-centered denominations. I used to think, well, all denominations are a product of disunity. Listen, denominations allow us to worship God in specific contextual ways that are beautiful, that are rich. And we've got brothers and sisters in the assemblies of God. And they might want to worship God in a little bit different way than we do. And that's awesome, but that's not comfortable for me. And I've got fundamental Baptist, I don't know if I want to call them brothers, but they're there. I used to be in one. 
They're there, and they worship God a lot different than I do, and I'm not comfortable with them either. Listen, I'm comfortable with you, and I hope you're comfortable with me worshiping God together. There is beauty in denominations as long as the denominations don't create divisions. And it's not a call, this unity, for every church to organize itself the same way so that every church you go into looks exactly the same. It's a call to unite around God's word, every single church exalting God in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how you unify. And it says in this verse, Jesus does, true Christian unity comes from God. It's a request to his Father for us. Listen, unity among a church is grounded in Scripture. Speaks to the world about the reconciling work of Christ, and it makes for a powerful witness. The reason, well, I hope you hear this, the reason Jesus prays for our unity is simply so that the world might believe in him. You know what Thomas Merton once said? This is pretty wild. I think he's pretty right. He says, divisions in the church breed atheism in the world. Division in a church breeds atheism in the world. But you can flip that. You can flip that to where unity in the church, that yes, we have differences. Listen, you don't think like I think exactly the same, and that's a good thing for you. And I don't really feel as passionately about everything that you feel passionate about, and that's what brings complexity and variety and beauty to a church. Listen, when we love each other enough to unify around the Word of God, unify around the person of Christ, then that speaks gospel witness to the world but there's one more point and i think it's the most incredible and audacious thing he prays we are to become perfectly one so the world will know god's love we just saw that unity among believers listen it's critical it's essential for the world to believe the message of jesus but what jesus prays next it seems like it's a repeat but it's a different prayer. He prays that Christian unity would help unbelievers know the extent of God's love for his church. That's a little different. It's actually very different. There's a couple thoughts here that are so massive that they boggle my mind. I can only get to a little bit of this. I'm, tr- I'm trying to dig more into this. I just, my mind started to close down. Here's what I got for you. Here's a couple thoughts. Number one, the first one is this. Look at your text. The glory that you have given me, Christ prays, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Here, I think this is what this means. Just as Jesus showed the world who God is, Now, he's given that task to the church. I don't like this. That means we have a responsibility, listen, and a power to show the world what God is like. I'm more comfortable with Jesus does that. Don't put that on the church, but Jesus says, no. That glory you gave me to show everybody who you were like, I'm giving that to the church, and I'm going to help them. They're going to show the world what you are like and what I'm like, and they're going to see it, the world will, when they're unified, when they're one. The Father and Son, listen, they guard their glory. They're jealous for their glory. It's not something they share lightly. They're investing in their treasured possession, the church, and they're going to help us attain this unity. Look what it says, verse 22. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Jesus says, listen, I'm not going to give them your glory without climbing inside their church and helping them because this is too important to squander. So I'm going to make it a reality. I'm going to be in them the way you've been in me, and I'm going to help them shine in a way that the world's going to see what you're like, Father, through them. Recall your wedding day if you're married. 
when you and your spouse were united as one through your vows, that's when you're married in a wedding. It's not when the pastor or the justice of the peace says by the power of the state of wherever. That, you, listen, you're married before that. When you take your vows in the presence of God, he establishes a covenant. And he creates in those vows a seamless unity. There is no serrated edge. So should you divorce... I'm going to tell you, should you divorce, you will never neatly tear it apart. It's going to leave jagged edges called emotional scars. It's going to hurt. Yet though God joins you together the day of your wedding, you've got to work hard at learning to function in unity. So this is what I often do. Whenever I do a wedding, I tell the couple this. Enjoy your wedding day. Now go make your marriage great. Similarly, unity is a gift of grace from God through Christ to his church. We've all got it. We all possess this gift. But every single believer, just like every husband and wife, listen, you got to make it work. You got to guard it. You got to maintain it. You got to put ceaseless effort into it because your flesh is going to want to find ways to create separation. There's one final statement that staggers the mind when you really think on it. The first one is that Jesus gives the church the glory that the Father had given him, the responsibility and the ability to show the world what God's like. That's our power. That's our privilege. That is a weighty responsibility. But here's the second one. And you see it in the verse. And look at it again, verse 23. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Now I'm pretty sure you're not quite getting this. Because all of a sudden, you're going to have little nuclear warheads detonating in your mind and trickling down in your heart. You're going to feel it. You're going to see it. And look at what it says again. So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them. He's speaking to his 11 disciples and all of those who are going to come to faith from their teaching, from their word. That would be you, Christian brother and sister, that's me, so that the world will know that you sent me and loved them, us, the church, as you loved me. All right, so just in case, you've got a fuse that started to light and then it sputtered out. I'm going to relight it for you. Ready? Now, you've got to hear this. The phrase even as in the Greek means to the same degree. Man, I hope that thing's burning. Come on, just let it go off. I'm going to reword it to help it burn so that the world may know that you sent me and loved the church to the same degree that you've loved me. That's exactly what it's saying. Come on, this is a truth so wonderful that it's nearly unbelievable. God loves the Christian to the same degree that he loves his son. Now, I got four kids. And I love them vastly greater than I love any of yours. I'm sorry, but that's the truth. And I know that's the truth for your kids versus my kids. I'm sure you love my kids, but you don't love them like you love your kids. That's not true for God. That's not true for the Heavenly Father. Christian brother and sister, God the Father loves you to the same degree that he loves his son Jesus. That's explosive. Quit waking up thinking that God's tired of you. Quit waking up thinking you have no reason to live. you got every reason to live if you're in Christ because the Father's love is pouring into you. Look what it says in Romans 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts. The word means overflowing through the, the Holy Spirit which, who has been given to us. The love we must have to experience world attention, unity, mission-saturated worship is God's love that he pours into our hearts and it overflows to each other in the church. Here's what it looks like. You ready? You bump into me relationally. 
I hear that you gossiped about me. I hear that you criticized me. You don't like me as much as Pastor Matthew. You don't like me as much as Pastor Tim. You bump into me relationally, and what should come out of me, what should splash from me onto you is the love of God. So I bump into you, and I say something to offend you in a sermon, or I don't contact you when something very difficult goes on in your life, and what should splash out of you to me is the love of God. That's love-saturated unity, and it can bear up under anything. And our effectiveness in the world is absolutely directly related to how well we pour out God's love to one another and maintain unity. Now, I'm almost done, so i got to tell you this. I did a little thing on Facebook yesterday, I think it was. I saw that article about Target and transgender people, and I shared it on my Facebook friends, and it's created a lot of discussion. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to watch the discussion unfold, because my view on it, it might be different than your view, and that's okay. Can we surround ourselves, can we centralize ourselves on the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the Word of God? Yes, can we do that? Then, then we can have different opinions. So I've been watching the comments section on this, and I'm going to tell you that I'm almost entirely thrilled with how our people in this church are responding. They are definitely passionate. They are convicted with their answers. Not everybody's are the same, but they love one another. There's a gentleness with one another. There's a peaceableness. There's, an, there's a humility that maybe I don't know exactly what the right answer is. There is a definite hold to unity. That's what it's about. So Christians, God has saved us through Christ. We are reborn by his power. We are no longer of this world, yet he has sent us into it with the worship of his son, Jesus Christ, as we speak the gospel and we live it. And there is almost no way that you live the gospel more clearly and beautifully than when you're in a church that loves one another and will not let go of unity. It shows the world who Jesus is. It shows the world who the Father is. It is an effective witness so that the world can believe and the world can know just how incredibly great the love of God is for the church because it's overflowing to one another. So how could we not love each other? And how could we not maintain the unity that God has given to us? Amen? Let's pray.